Hi, I'm Joel. Welcome everyone who's joining us online. I count it my joy to serve you today. Uh, you're joining us at the end of a three-part sermon series on the Sabbath, God's gift of the rest to those who are weary. We're about to read a passage from Hebrews chapter 4 about rest, Sabbath rest. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles at this time to Hebrews chapter 4. I would encourage you later on to read chapter 3. I'm not going to read that part even though I listed it in the bulletin. You'll also find it on page 5 in your bulletin. Um, In this passage, I want us to note a couple things. You're going to hear a lot of repetition. You're also going to hear a warning. As I was reading this this week, it brought to mind a scene from C.S. Lewis's fantasy book, The Silver Chair. Any of you read that book? few of us. There's this mountaintop scene where Aslan, the great lion, is about to send young Jill off on an adventure. And he gives her instructions about signs that she is supposed to remember. Aslan says this, listen, say them to yourself when you wake in the morning and when you lay down at night and when you wake in the middle of the night. And whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. And secondly, I give you a warning. Here on the mountain, I have spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so down in Narnia. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take care that it does not confuse your mind. And the signs that you have learned here will not look at all like you expect them to look when you meet them there. That is why it's so important to know them by heart and pay no attention to appearances. Remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. Aslan warns Jill to remember and to believe. And he taught her this because when she leaves the mountain down below, when she hits earth, the air is going to be polluted. It's going to be hazy. It's going to be hard to see what is true anymore when you're down on earth. She must keep repeating the instructions in order to remember the signs, in order to believe them. So Jill heads down to Narnia. She's busy reciting the instructions over and over. And what do you think happens? Like so many children, you give last minute instructions to what happens? (sighs) Instruction amnesia. She forgets and she and her companions end up on the wrong course. Do you know that instruction amnesias, amnesia explains all the problems that we see in our world right now? Our first parents forgot God's instructions. They actually added to them and they subtracted from them. And that explains all the mess that you see all around us. Now the writer of Hebrews has been telling a later story about Israel's wilderness generation. God brought them out of Egypt as we saw last week. He brings them to this mountain for a new instruction session. And sadly, Israel leaves the mountain with these instructions. What happens? They forget them. Friends, today, the church has largely forgotten God's instructions. But wonderfully, we find ourselves, as we heard earlier, at a better mountain this morning. And our God is about to speak. Friends, today we simply need to remember what we hear the instructions and believe and trust above all things that nothing else matters what God's going to speak right now. 
Now hear the word of our God from Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to read the first 11 verses. Now hear the word of our God. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. There, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that right now uh, our minds are prone to be distracted and our hearts are prone to harden. Will you do something in the mere moments we have here that today may be a good day for us? Help us to remember, help us to believe, and help us to see your Son, our Lord Jesus, raised from the dead that we might have life eternal. We pray this in his name. Amen. I'm always jealous of pastors who have Scottish accents. Uh, my pastor friend, David Murray, he's in our presbytery. He tells the story, and wonderful, better than I can, of the most powerful sermon he never heard. When he lived for a time in the village of Ness on a little Scottish island. It's one of the few places left on earth. It was one of the few places left on earth where everything was shut down on Sundays. There was no sports, no restaurants, no buses, no shops. The planes were parked. Nothing happened for a whole day. Does that sound wonderful or does it sound like a nightmare? David actually said it was a struggle for him being there until one Sunday afternoon it hit him as he was sitting outside. He looked out at all the stillness and he realized it was perfect peace. The empty sports fields, the locked shops, the parked planes. David said it was like paradise. Everything was preaching this message it is finished. Friends, it is finished is what God's gift of the Sabbath is all about. It's what God declared at the end of creation. And then he rested on the seventh day. Of course, the phrase, it is finished, recalls actually another mountain scene, doesn't it? Mount Calvary. It is finished were Jesus' final words as he finished his earthly work on the cross. The Son of God became the first Son of Man to actually remember and keep the instructions all the way to the end. And then Jesus rested in the grave on what day? The seventh day. 
the Sabbath. Jesus came on our behalf to do what we cannot, and he entered that Sabbath rest. And the questions before us today are these. How do Jesus' death and resurrection impact the Sabbath? Is the Sabbath command abrogated? I mean, no longer valid or necessary. If not, then why do we meet on Sunday and not Saturday or or just any day we want? And here's one more question. Has the church largely forgotten instructions about this that we once knew so well? The author warns us here not to be like the Israelites who do not enter that rest. So let me start off with some Bible trivia about Israel when they first came to Mount Sinai. After 40 days up on the mountain, what were God's final instructions to Moses? I know that some of you know, maybe. Just a little shy right now. Here's the answer. Exodus 31, verse 12, And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. This is a sign between me and you throughout all your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Verse 16. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, And on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Last words are important, aren't they? God's final instructions after 40 days on the mountain are Sabbath instructions. God said, above all, You are to keep my Sabbaths. God prioritizes the Sabbaths above all other commandments. Do we? J.C. Ryle once said, Our Sundays and how we use them is one of the most sure signs of our spiritual condition. Friends, we've been talking about God's gracious gift. It's a gift of the Sabbath. Hebrews says here, We must strive to enter God's rest. That means... If you find Sundays coming to church and all those things you're trying to do, if you find that difficult, you're probably doing it right. Especially, is especially challenging in our day because it goes against an increasingly wicked culture that we live in. It's true what the Bible says. There is no rest for the wicked. It's not a healthy sign for us. If we are well adjusted to a sick society, dead fish, how do they float? Downstream. Live fish, what do they do? They fight against the current. So let's commit ourselves to take in God's instructions about the gifts so that as we leave the mountain and head out into the haze of this world, we won't just survive, but we can actually thrive. Now we're going to review the last two weeks, Sabbath stopping, Sabbath starting, before we consider Sabbath striving that we heard about here in Hebrews. And we're also going to see how the Sabbath is a sign pointing us to a greater future destination. Sabbath stopping. God wants us to stop one day in seven. Isn't that so countercultural? Pastor Nuri actually later visited the village of Ness to find out the modernizers had won. The village was all in a bustle. Planes were taken off. Noise and activity everywhere. Instruction amnesia had even infected the mountain country of Scotland that had held out for so long. 
the land of the flying Scotsman. Who's a flying Scotsman, Joel? <laughs> Eric Liddell. If you'd lived 100 years ago, you would know who this guy was. He was internationally known as the fastest man on the planet. He was favored to win the 100-meter dash in the Olympics. But when the Olympic Committee announced that qualifying was going to be held on Sunday, you know what Liddell did? You do know, yeah. Liddell chose to honor a different king and a different country than his earthly ones. He went to church that morning and forfeited his chance at Olympic gold. Think about that. There are a lot of American athletes who profess faith, give God all the glory after the touchdowns, right, and the scores. Let me ask you this. When is the last time you heard of an American athlete refusing to compete on a Sunday? I hear crickets. The world has changed a lot, even since I was little, when much was shut down on Sunday. And I recently discovered, actually, our own superhero is to blame. Whose fault is it? It's Batman's. What do you mean, Joel? Actually, if you see the movie, Batman Begins. You seen that movie? Yeah. How does Bruce Wayne get started? He buys into this message when it comes to him. It's not who you are underneath. It's what you do that defines you. Okay, it's not all Batman's fault. <laughs> but that is the mantra that's being sold to us all over. I keep hearing this thing, you do you. Isn't that a popular thing people are saying now? Nike, just do it. Think about how this message constantly coming at us shapes us. If we are defined by, if our identity is what we do, what happens to you when you stop doing, when you rest for even one day? You cease to be. You cease to matter. But thanks be to God, our Creator did not define us to be what we do or that our identity is found in what we do. Our identity is in the first place, being made in God's image, our being, our being. God made us, we saw this in our first sermon, unique in all creation. You are so amazing, each and every one of us here. The basis for why our lives matter is you were made to reflect the glory of the creator of all things. Yes, we are to reflect God in what we do as well, but not in the first place. And God makes that clear because day number one for mankind was not a work day. Have you thought about that? God made man on the sixth day. And what comes next? The seventh, a day of rest. The first day man steps into, is supposed to step into. Why? Because, friends, you and I are finite. God made us with limits. We're limited by time, space, power, by knowledge. Presbyterians need to remember that. We were made from the beginning to be dependent upon God, dependent on one another, and dependent on our earth. You see, humility is not a pre-fall, a post-fall condition. It was a pre-fall condition. It's not just something for us after we fell into sin. And we need to remember this in Reformed circles because we are really, 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 really good at guilt. Really good. Don't we take our sin seriously? More seriously? How many churches do you go to where you confess your sins? We don't only confess the sins we do, we also confess all the sins we didn't do. And if we forget the goodness of our limits, we're going to mix up finitude with sin. 
We'll feel guilty over all we're not doing. And what happens then? (laughs) We become workaholics or we burn out. Or we become self-righteous and look down on others. Recently, a local brother was quoting Charles Studd to motivate all us namby-pamby Christians. Charles Studd, you heard of him before? A missionary 100 years ago. He went to Africa, India, China, and he used to shame weak believers. He'd write a lot about it. He encouraged folks to reckless Christianity. Yeah, that's not a new thing. This brother was arguing that we should be 100% sold out for Jesus Christ. I mean, think of the sacrifice Jesus made for you. Why shouldn't you be just 100% sold out? You want to hear what Stud wrote near the end of his life? He wrote this in his journal. By the way, he's working 18 hours a day. He's addicted to morphine, and now he only sees his wife two weeks of the year at best. Here's what he writes at the end of his reckless Christian life. My heart seemed worn out and bruised beyond repair. And in my deep loneliness, I often wish to be gone. Do you think God wanted his life to be defined by what he did to the point that his heart was aching, that he didn't even want to live anymore? Do you think God wanted that? To burn himself out? Guilt over finitude is not a good thing, and especially in a small church plant in a hugely needy world. That's why we actually don't have a lot of ministries here. Why we have a reflection in every single one of our leadership meetings about how we need refreshment, how we are limited in what we can do. We aren't trying to be an extraordinary church, as I saw the signs of a church I was at last week. We're not trying to be extraordinary. We're trying to be a church of ordinary disciples, doing what we can within our limits. Because God declared that you as a finite, limited creature from the beginning, that you were very good. And he instructed us to weekly Sabbath stopping. Now, some of us, Sabbath stopping is not our main issue. Elder Rex read from verses from Matthew chapter 11, the final verses where Jesus calls us to Sabbath starting. Come to me and I will give you rest. Here's my heart, gentle and lowly, accessible. Take my yoke upon you. Now, if you take out the chapter break right after that, the very next thing you find is a bunch of Sabbath controversies. Religious men first pop out of the bushes and accuse Jesus' disciples of munching kernels on the Sabbath, doing work because they're picking Sabbath kernels. These guys had actually figured out Sabbath stopping. (laughs) But they were just as forgetful. Instead of subtracting from the instructions, now they're adding to the instructions in this day. So what did Jesus do? He declares, oh, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, and he heads off to their synagogue. There he finds what? A man with a crippled hand and a whole crowd of people staring at him, glaring, seeing if he would dare to heal this man with a crippled hand. Mark adds in his version that Jesus looks around a room very much like our own. And he's angry. Full stop. Jesus gets accused of being in league with Satan. He doesn't get angry. Jesus gets accused of being a drunk and a glutton. He doesn't get angry. 
Jesus, when he's being beaten, whipped, spit on, and hung on the cross, we don't read Jesus got angry. But Jesus got angry on the Sabbath when he was with his people. Mark said Jesus got angry because, looked at them with anger because he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts. Do you see Jesus' emotions here? He loved them so deeply, but they're like the hard-hearted wilderness generation. Jesus has just held out his heart, gentle and lowly. The Lord of the Sabbath came to his own. He's here with his bride. He's finally arrived. The Sabbath was to be a day to the Lord, and they don't want him. They don't want his gift, except one guy, the guy with the crippled hand. He hears Jesus' call. And what does he do? He reaches out his hand. And Jesus gives him rest. He restores this man. That may be something you need to do today while it is still today. Jesus is in this room right now, and he is looking at you, every one of us. And he's holding out his heart. Do you hear his voice this morning? Do you feel the tug in your heart? Do you feel the weariness of this world? That's the Holy Spirit if you feel that. And you need to get started. You need to reach out to Jesus to trust that he wants to do you well. And maybe that's hard for you to reach out because your hand has been withered and crippled. Friends, reach out no matter how hard it is. I'll embarrass my wife for the second week in a row. I remember dating my wife early on. And after a couple dates, I resolved I was going to try to hold her hand. And I felt the urge, but it was hard. It was awkward. It was uncomfortable. I'm trying to work my hand over to hers so it doesn't look like I'm doing it. It may be awkward and uncomfortable for you to come here to sing Bible songs, to confess your sins, to pay attention and to really, it may be hard and awkward and uncomfortable. Friends, after what seemed like hours, it was probably only maybe 15, 20 minutes, I finally got my hand close enough and I just touched her with my pinky and she grabbed a hold of my hand. It was wonderful. It was glorious. Woohoo! She's holding my hand. To quote those great theologians, the Goo Goo Dolls, I was thinking, this is the closest to heaven that I'll ever be. It was worth the effort. But friends, as wonderful as that was, that moment, that was not the closest to heaven that I'll ever be. If I believe on the Lord Jesus, reach out and strive to enter that rest. As we read in Hebrews 4.11, the author encouraged us to therefore strive to enter that rest. Now this is different than starting or stopping. We're told to strive. That means to labor, to work enter rest. The author is indicating that rest is actually a destination, a place that's only accessible by faith that works. He recalls from the creation account how God rested from his works on the seventh day in creation. The point being made here, don't let this pass you by, is mind-blowing. The rest God offers you is nothing less than the very rest he, the divine creator of all things, experienced and enjoyed on his day of rest. That is the rest he's offering to you. 
Do you see that God is passionate about you learning to delight in the Sabbath? Delight in what he himself knows? God is no heavenly school teacher with a ruler ready to smack us every time we disobey or break the Sabbath. No, God wants us to delight in Sabbath fellowship with him. Think about it. What greater pleasure could there be than fellowship with the creator, the source of all pleasures? The heart-hearted generation in the wilderness didn't believe. They forgot the instructions. It turns out, though, that Joshua, who brought the next generation into the land, he didn't deliver that rest. Or David, later on in Psalm 95, as the author's quoting, would not have spoken of another day. The author's point here is that there is another day later on, a day after the seventh, a day after, verse 8, that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, verse 9. In other words, there's a future Sabbath rest, friends, that comes after the seventh day. And that came in the resurrection of Jesus on what day? The first day or the eighth day. Jesus rested on the grave on the seventh day in order to bring in Easter Sunday, the resurrection. The Christian Sabbath was inaugurated by the new creation. The resurrection is the basis for why we now, the change of day from the seventh to the first. You see, think of it this way. We're not like the Jews who are living for the future, that seventh day, the Sabbath rest at the end of the week. No. United to the risen Lord Jesus Christ, Christians now live out their whole week from rest. Not for rest, from rest. This means that we're not like our unbelieving neighbors. You know, everybody is working for the weekend. No. Whose activities often leave them more weary for them to start another week. No. We are those who are working from the Lord's day, saying, thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving me the grace from day one, for taking my burdens, for giving me your kind yoke, because I needed that rest just to get through another week. Do you see the difference? Scott Hubbard says, well, the world and the devil would have us work even while we rest, but Jesus would have us rest even while we work. Now, some of my Seventh-day Sabbath friends who still worship on Saturday would challenge me here, and actually they have. They'd say, Joel, where is the New Testament command that you find the change of day? Seventh to the first. And I'd say, nowhere. It's not there. But if you're truly interested in, in looking through Scripture, I'd ask them if their practice of Saturday worship was actually consistent with the Scriptures as well. You see, the Sabbath was not in the first place a day of worship. No, it was a day of rest. When did the Jews go to the temple to worship? On the feast days. Read Leviticus 23, where it talks about the Feast of Booth, Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Temples, or Feast of Pentecost. When do they all take place? On the first day or the eighth day. Always. These feasts were all pointing forward. First day worship to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the new creation. That's why Paul says, as we see in our second passage, Colossians 2, 16 and 17, Therefore, Christians, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, 
but the substance belongs to Christ. The Sabbaths, the festivals, the sacrifices, all these things were shadows of Christ who is, in a sense, the shadow caster. They were signs, but Christ was the substance. Thus, we have no more need for these signs except the Christian Sabbath. Except the Christian Sabbath, because as Hebrews told us, the eternal Sabbath is still future. We're not there yet. And the New Testament and gospel writers understood this. After the resurrection, John, the Apostle John, notes multiple times that Jesus, the risen Christ, shows up on the first day or the eighth day to come in fellowship with his people. Luke 23 is really interesting. Luke's more clear than anybody. It ends with Jesus in the tomb and the women resting on the Sabbath as commanded. Why does Luke emphasize as commanded? They're following, they're obeying the Sabbath rule. To make very clear that they were still obeying up to the end, that is the last recorded time you find Christians observing the Sabbath in the Scriptures. It's the last time. And what does Luke 24 tell us? (laughs) Jesus meets with his disciples on the first day of the week, making himself known through the word, through the breaking of the bread. Is it any wonder that after this, when you read the New Testament, Christians are gathering on the first day of the week as in Acts and elsewhere? Perhaps the clearest proof is found at the start of the final book in our Bibles. The Apostle John, remember the heavenly revelation that he saw? Do you remember the day that the heavenly worship happened? John says in Revelation 1.10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. There's a very practical reason I'll add to this as a history guy for why we find no first day command in the scriptures. Do you realize that one third to half of the early Christians, the infant church, were slaves? God doesn't still give commands to those who are in Egypt. He gives them when they're set free. What would happen if these slaves of the infant church all went to their master and said, oh, I can't work this day anymore? What would happen? This actually explains our final scripture passage from Acts 20. It helps us to understand what's going on here. Luke writes, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him up in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Now I hope the first thing that jumps out at everybody right now is the danger of falling asleep during a long sermon. Especially if you're a boy from ages 8 to 14, which is probably Eutychus' age. No, I'm just kidding. That's not Luke's point here. Luke is not suggesting that Eutychus has a hard heart. Luke is telling us that Eutychus is a weary slave. 
Actually, I think there's a better point to be made for the problem of preaching too long. All right? So I'm going to land the plane here in a minute. Paul has been visiting believers in this small city of Troas where he didn't actually intend to be. And Luke noted right before this, he has to wait for seven days. Why seven days? So that they can meet on the first day, not just any day. Here's a window into the early church practice. The early church gathers on the Lord's day to break bread and to hear the word. Weary souls who by necessity had to meet at night at first because so many of them are slaves. Eutychus is actually a slave name, ironically meaning lucky one. <laughs> now some commentators note you know, the description here, there's an upper room and it's packed and Luke is noting there's all these lamps here to show it, oh, it lacked oxygen. That's why Eutychus has to go get some oxygen at the window and all. Get some fresh air. That's not Luke's point. Luke wrote earlier, Acts 2, of something amazing that happened on the first day of the week in an upper room, packed with believers, and oh, it was filled with lots of flames. Luke wants us to connect this scene to Pentecost. Now, they encounter a horrific tragedy as this poor boy plummets to his death. Eutychus had likely worked really hard that day, and he had come to hear the gospel. And as the hours passed, and Paul kept preaching and preaching and preaching, his eyes grew heavy, his mind grew weary, overcome by sleep. And to this congregation's horror, they watch as he falls and his young life is snatched away. And into this moment of shock and sorrow, Paul shouts out, Do not be alarmed! And Paul demonstrates the power of the resurrection on the day when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. That's the good news here. That's why we gather on the first day of the week. And what a wonderful sign to this little group in Troas. Eutychus, overcome by his limits, becomes the recipient of amazing grace. And in response to what God has done, they go back in, what do they do? They break bread and... Paul can't help but to speak about the mighty acts of God all the way till daybreak. I have no doubt they heard a whole lot about the hope of the resurrection with what they just seen in that sign. And he adds, and they were not a little comforted. <laughs> That's a major understatement, I think. Friends, this text is shouting out that when we gather together, all of us here, the small group on a Sunday, we can find comfort, we can find encouragement, just like this tired little group in Troas. Pentecost power continues to ripple out into the most unexpected places. And Heart City Church in Elkhart certainly qualifies. God is telling us that by His Spirit, He is still working to bring life to little groups of weary souls as we gather together to meet on Sunday on the Lord's Day. God says in Acts 20, Don't be discouraged, little group of weary pilgrims. I'm still at work in you. And you've come to the right place on the right day. The mountain where I have instructions and rest. In a couple weeks, we're going to start a bi-weekly Sunday evening fellowship. And I encourage you to come if you're able. If you can't, no worries. We're still in Egypt, friends. We are in Egypt. Pharaoh would be proud of our culture. But find other ways, I encourage you, to stop. On this day especially, as your Creator stopped on His labors. Sabbath stopping, you know what it is? It is professing that we're not better than God. 
is professing that apart from him, we can do nothing. So we stop to rest. Second, let's try to find new ways to start. Because, as we sang last week, far better is God's love than life. Far better is his love than this life. We show our love and trust to the one who redeemed us from the tyranny of this world. And thirdly, let's strive to enter that Sabbath rest, remembering what we've just heard and believing the signs, especially the Sabbath that he's given us. And lastly, we live in a world where many souls are weary. You know them. They're your neighbors. They're your friends, your co-workers. Invite them here. Some, like Eutyches, may not be able to make a morning service. Tell them we got an evening option, bi-weekly now. And pray, pray that many on this day will come to discover God's rest, which is more powerful than all of your labors, yours and mine. I'll close with this quote from A.J. Swoboda. He says, well, God's rest is always more effective than human work. God rests and the world is finished. Jesus rests in the tomb and the world is being restored. The spirit rests on us and the church is empowered. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this brief Sabbath series where we were able to see this wonderful gift that you have so graciously given to us in all of our finitude. And we confess our limits. We confess our weariness. And we thank you that you've handed us this new calendar, this wonderful gift. I pray that you help us not only to unwrap it, but to learn how to use it, Lord, because we're challenged in this. We're forgetful. Will you help us to remember the instructions today? And most of all, help us to rest in the good news of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's brought us into the new creation. We pray this in his name. Amen.